If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, December the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, Deborah J. Saunders. She's a Hoover Media Fellow. To the point of this conversation, she is the White House Correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And prior to taking that job, she was a political columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Chronicle's, quote, token conservative. I'm not making that up. Her writing is carried nationwide by Creator Syndicate, and you can find her on townhall.com. I've known her for about 10 or 15 years. My first question, what does the J and Deborah J. Saunders stand for? Jean. Jean. It's an actual name. It's not like Harry S. Truman. <laughs> no, it's an actual name. All right, so you traded in one bastion of zaniness, which would be San Francisco, for another. Do you think you traded up, traded down, or traded sideways? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think I traded up. How so? Uh, San Francisco is a target-rich environment, and there are many things that happen in San Francisco that are perfect fodder for a columnist. Now I'm a reporter, and I'm writing about politics, and this is Politics Central. This is the story of the century, Donald Trump, and I'm in the middle of it. Okay, but nobody makes fun of Washington. No, well, okay, people make fun of San Francisco. Right. People make fun of Washington. Uh, one's uh, sort of a zany city in the West Coast, and the other is the swamp. Okay, now that you've moved 2,500 miles to the east, in retrospect, what is the most legitimate criticism of San Francisco? Well, I, I, I look at the sanctuary city criticism from Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and it's, it's amazing to me that after uh, somebody who was a, uh, someone convicted of seven felonies, who was undocumented, who had been deported five times, uh, who had been protected by a ludicrous sanctuary city policy that didn't protect people who were undocumented but otherwise law-abiding. This was a policy that deliberately uh, protected career criminals who were also illegal immigrants. The fact that San Francisco dug in its heels and decided that that all the criticism was Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump and wouldn't change the policy, it says it all. I I mean, mean, there, there are a million things to love about San Francisco and and I do love San Francisco, sometimes it gets a little too precious. That's all. If you had been back there, I assume you would have been writing about the Steinle trial, the Kate Steinle trial, the young girl who was killed on Pier 14 in San Francisco by a bullet from a gun that went off that was in the possession of a illegal immigrant. What would have been the blowback for your writing from that? Well, again, it there are many liberal cities in the United States where you could say that there's something really wrong with a policy that protected somebody who'd been con- convicted of seven felonies and deported five times, and they still would not turn this guy over to ICE. Mm-hmm. And people would think, yeah, that's wrong. Right. <laughs> in San Francisco, no. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would call, call me, you know, racist, nativist, all sorts of things, uh, because I, w- I would have been critical of the policy itself. Right. Uh, the, I didn't cover the trial, so what? Why the jurors came to the conclusion they came to is not something that I would feel as comfortable opining on as I would have if I were still in San Francisco and been following the case. Mm-hmm. But this really is a policy that I mean, you know, why did Donald Trump get elected? Because he told people, "I'm here to to stand up for Americans, and I'm not going to ask you to." Uh, live in a less safe environment in order to accommodate people who do, do not wish you well. Now, I don't, I didn't agree with things that he said about illegal immigrants from the moment he announced that he was running and he said they're rapists, you know, they're, they're criminals. And But in this case, it's true. <laughs> in this particular crazy case, it's true. And San Francisco would not change the policy. And that is just... Um, it's it's arrogant. And, and by the way, uh, Bill, you know this. This was not the first time that an undocumented uh, illegal immigrant with criminal convictions had been protected by San Francisco sanctuary city laws. Right. 
um, the, 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 um, there was a, a gentleman who killed a man and his and his two sons, and he had been basically let let off because of the sanctuary city policy. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, so we are now here on a Monday morning, and we're about two blocks away from from the White House. And after this podcast, you're going to go to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about this before the podcast. You don't know what you're writing about today. That's right. So, oh. so take us take us through. The day of a White House reporter, because you have gone from existence where you're a columnist, where you are mapping out sometimes two and three columns ahead of time what you want to write about. Now you're going in kind of reacting day to day. When you walk into the White House at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock today, whatever time you actually get to work, where do you go? Where do you sit down? And how do you process what you're going to do? I just want to mention that was the Bologna family that got killed. I I didn't want to leave the name out. Uh, uh, Okay. Um, So uh, I have an office in the press building the National Press Building. Mm-hmm. And so I won't go over to the White House until before the briefing. What time is the briefing? Good question. Uh, according to the schedule, it's at 2 o'clock today. Uh, frequently when they say that a briefing will be at 2 o'clock, it will be postponed about the time after I've left to go over to the White House, and they'll postpone it till 2.30, sometimes later than that, and uh, then figure add another 15 minutes just for normal lateness. Uh, so... I try to write on the story of the day, and I'm not entirely sure what it is today. Do I write on the tax bill? There are lots of things to say about what's going on with that. Uh, Do I write on Trump's, uh, about the media's bad week last week, Uh, the the three big stories it got wrong and how the president has been tweeting on that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I write about some of the female allegations? Do I write ahead of Roy Moore? Uh, in the Alabama Senate race, in which the president has been involved in? Or will something else uh, sprout up? Which is possible, because I know, for example, today um, the president is having lunch with the agriculture secretary. And last week, Ted Cruz uh, talked with him. And it looks like Ted Cruz is trying to get him to pull back the renewable fuel standard, or ethanol, as, as we look at it. Maybe there'll be some other story that comes out of nowhere. It's just not always clear. All right, and your colleagues. So when you walk, so you walk over from the press building to the White House, and you go into the White House press room. How many people are sitting in that room for a briefing? A lot, a lot of people watch this on TV, and they don't often show the long shot of how many people in that room. So you don't, you can't get a sense how many reporters. How many people are jammed in that room? Ooh, that's okay. So there are forty nine seats in the room. Seven times seven, or seven? Yeah, seven times. Sort of like San Francisco's uh, <laughs> area. Square, square miles. Um, so there are 49 seats, and they're assigned to people. Mm-hmm. You will see me sitting sometimes, but I don't have a seat. I share a seat with regional reporters. Mm-hmm. And if the regional reporter who has the seat that day doesn't show up, I can grab the seat. There's a, There are a number of people who will notice that seats aren't used, and they'll, they'll sort of uh, commandeer those seats so there's a and there's a lot of politics and in fact the other day somebody came in late and there was a there was movement just as, as sarah sanders was coming in it can get nasty um frequently you'll see me standing on in, in the aisle on the sidelines um and the, which a lot of people do because they don't have seats right. and uh that it's pretty crowded there uh there are a lot of there's a lot of equipment there there's a lot of um anger and you know there's a lot of jostling that goes on there Mm -hmm. it's better to sit down because sarah sanders tends to call on people who are seated all right how many times has she taken your question uh i haven't counted i would say probably she takes a question from me once every 10 days and is she in the back of her head does she know how often she's talked to you or is this a matter of you just getting her is there a trick to getting her attention you would not believe what people do to try to get called on there well, we, it, okay, so we know we know the, the the Nancy read from Ronald Reagan, but what what are the tricks in this way so we're getting Sarah Sanders' attention? Well, I mean, well, let me go back to Sean Spicer, which is when I was sort of learning. Like people will, you'll see a lot of bright colors. Okay. This is not a bright color season right now so much, but you'll see a lot of bright colors. People wearing really flashy earrings. Women wearing. Well, I guess men could get attention that way too. But at any rate, you'll so you'll see a lot of of that. Um, it. There are certain people who have great voices for asking questions. I try to catch her eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will send emails saying, gee, will you please call on me? Uh, some might even say what the question's going to be. Uh, some have, uh, 
it, uh, let me just mention, by the way, I'm frequently sending emails asking questions for something I'm working right. on. Um, I, I would assume that that might have something to do with whether or not she calls on me or not. Um, and, of course, they always go in the front rows, and the front rows tend to be the the big print, wire services, and but mostly television. So, And, uh, Bill, you are someone who I know understands that they often call on people who they know will ask questions. want to get to that in a minute. But, okay. Okay, so with Sean Spicer, you're telling me that I can't even bling – flashy colors are a way to get his attention. This is also a male thing, though, isn't it? Especially if you're a woman, you could, I don't want to be sexist here, but you dress up and you and you look flashy and maybe you catch the man's eye. So you're dealing with a female press secretary. So how do you yeah. catch the attention of a female press secretary? I think Sarah Sanders is somebody who looks around the room. I mean, you can see her looking to think about what she will do next. I don't know. I, I wish I could give you a better answer. I just know that I spend a lot of time, and everybody in that room spends a lot of time thinking about what will I ask today. Um, and you should have four questions because the chances are someone will ask one of the other ones that you've asked. Um, and I think one of the, again, I think that they're looking for, if there's, a, if, if there's a story where it's Trump versus the media, they call on the media who will give them the hardest time. Jim Acosta. Exactly. CNN. Uh, MSNBC reporters. Mm-hmm. They'll do that on purpose. And then then you're looking around for other stuff. For example, uh, I mean, they know that there are other uh, reporters who are more likely to ask about a policy issue, who are not necessarily looking at the flashy object that has got sometimes... I mean, I mean, understand, there are a lot of people in that room who think that some of the stories are totally ridiculous, and right. they don't want to ask questions about them. Um, I... Often, but not always, in one of those people. Sometimes I'm very interested in that story of the day, let me tell you. So um, I think there are times when she'll be looking around the room. And by the way, if you want a Nevada question or you want something regional, I'm a good person to look at. And there have been times when um, I've really, you know, really pushed that, and it just sort of doesn't necessarily go anywhere. Is there anything in that room commemorating Sarah McClendon? <laughs> Not that I've noticed. And you're laughing because Sarah McClendon was a White House correspondent for about 60 years, I think. she. I think she went from FDR up through Bush 43. Um, she worked for the McClendon News Service. She was a McClendon News Service, and she was a release valve for presidents, frankly. They would, when they were in the middle of a contentious press briefing, they would turn to Sarah, who would ask some just thoroughly out there question. And they did that on purpose. Uh, other administrations have done that oftentimes with foreign correspondents. They will just break the pressure of impeachment talk or something like that by going to the gentleman who'll ask about Korean trade policy or something like that. Who's the release valve in this White House press corps? Uh, Goy. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, if you watch the briefings, you know who he is. And they'll ask him questions. He'll, he'll ask questions about India. They also, by the way, there's an event coming up that has to do with China. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll ask Jessica Stone. I mean, they also, there are certain, they, 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 when there are events that are coming up that they know they want to ask questions on, they'll do that. Now, by the way, this is funny. So last Friday, as Sarah Sanders said, no more questions, and Brian Karam yelled out, what about uh, the president's voice? And she turned around and she said, okay, I never do this, but I'm turning around. She was, I think she assumed that somebody would ask him about the fact that his throat had been dry when he was delivering the Jerusalem speech. And people wondered, is it his dentures? Dentures, is he losing his mind? <laughs> Joe Scarborough went into an early dementia rage about that. So Yeah, so she's, she wanted that question. She wanted to beat it down. And no one had asked it. So when Brian yell, uh, uh, yelled that out to her, she said, I'm going to turn around and answer that. And she did. So so there are obviously, it, there are times that there are certain questions that they think certain people will ask. I, I, I think w- with me that they don't know as a rule what I'm going to ask. So, Where did Sean Spicer go wrong? On paper, Sean Spicer would seem designed for this because he was a Washington guy. and He was a press secretary for the Republican National Committee, and he understands especially how D.C. reporters operate and think. So you think, okay, he could run a White House press briefing, but it didn't work. The first day doomed him. That first day when he had the Got in the, got the, in briefing, the, the briefing room. Got the briefing about the crowd size. And took no questions and excoriated the media. I think his credibility was just undermined completely from that you moment. You probably on. noticed a Washington Post reporter 
blogged over the weekend. He went to a Trump. He went to the Trump rally in Mississippi, I think it was, and he and he uh, tweeted a crack about the crowd size, and then he got busted for it because it was wrong. Mm-hmm. That shows me that there's a problem here, and the problem is obviously part Donald Trump's approach to press relations, but there's also a problem I think with the press, Deb, in that they're just not letting things go, and they're still they're still stuck on day one in crowd size. Well, I mean. Let's just add a bunch of other things with that. You're talking about Dave Weigel. Yes. And um, there's a lot of pressure for, for certain people to tweet every minute. So he sees this picture and he does this quick tweet. And as the minute he realizes he's wrong, he takes it back. Right. And, uh, and Trump seizes on that to say you're inaccurate when, of course, we know that the White House was inaccurate on crowd right. size. I don't really – I'm not really – uh, fa- interested in relitigating all that, I I I I just shine it on. When the White House says fake news, I just don't even. It just goes right over my head. Uh, of course, I was a conservative columnist in San Francisco. I know how to ignore ignore that kind of baiting, right? right. So it, I, I just don't pay that much attention to it. Uh, the people who pay attention to it tend to get sort of angry. And wanting to prove certain things. And look, we know that the White House was just plain inaccurate about what it, the claims that it made, that Sean Spicer made about crowd size that day. And there's sort of a choice for people in that briefing room as to what they want to do about it. Uh, I think most of the people in the room want to write or broadcast stories that tell about what the White House is doing. There are some people who just want to keep acting like it's 2016. This does seem to me the story of 2017 and that Donald Trump and his press operation have not moved out of campaign mode. They will not let go any media mistakes. Fake news still continues in 2017. But conversely, on the media size, they won't let go of Trump. And I think they struggle with, first of all, Trump heiress. But secondly, I think they also struggle with the idea that Trump is a legitimate president. So I think we have pretty much wasted an entire year of Trump and media in loggerheads. Well, and of course... The public does not like us, the media. I mean, we're not popular. It's really easy to bash us. Uh, Who can blame them? And there are certain people who make that very easy by making the briefings about themselves or by – I mean, there are times – I I have to say, this is where Sarah Sanders is impressive. She'll chastise reporters for asking the same question seven times in a briefing, and it happens a lot less often. That's worked. I think it was the Post that wrote a pretty snarky, oh no, it wasn't even snarky, it was a column of outrage. It was right after Thanksgiving where I believe that she went around the room and asked people what they were giving thanks for. And the reaction from a Post columnist was how insulting to reporters and this is how far things have fallen apart. Now, you read that column, is there a legitimate point to that? Is, is this kind of a silly thing for her to be doing or is this an example of just everybody's got to lighten up? I was not in the room that day, and I'm there almost every day, mm-hmm. so I don't, I I don't quite understand the the buzz that went around on that. But yeah, I I just I think there are certain things that you can just be a little too self-important about. For how dare you ask me what I'm thankful for? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, we ask we ask questions all the time. So if somebody wants to ask us a question sometimes too, so be it. Why do you think the media are unpopular in this day and age? Is it, is it self-involvement? Um, I, I personally think every time the media talks about the media, people just want to turn off. They don't want to hear what media problems are. It's, to me, first world problems. People just don't want to hear about that. Is it just institutional lack of confidence? And then if you look around various institutions in America, most of our heroes seem to have feet of clays. We don't trust what institutions are doing or... Or are we just in a particularly cynical age? You know, I think a certain amount of it has to do with the Russian coverage. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, uh, again, you, there, there are people who don't believe Donald Trump won the election. Right. And he won the Electoral College. He did not win the popular vote. But that's sort of the system. So this is the way it is. And they look at this Russia story as being the thing that will bring him down. Now, what we've seen so far, that hasn't happened. And, uh, but what we have seen are a lot of really bad stories about Russia. And last week we saw them where, uh, and I can't tell you how many times, I'm sort of shocked when I'll read a story, and it will say, according to this memo, that 
the New York Times hasn't seen or CNN hasn't seen, but somebody read it to us on the phone. Really? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that that's... That's sort of a really hubristic mis error to make. I would think that if you feel that this that that this story is good, and that the person who's giving it to you is is a reliable source, that they should be able to actually show it to you, and to take somebody's word that they're reading something to you, and this is what it says. That shows that you're really happy to write a story based on only the part of the elephant someone wants you to see. Or feel, and that's just uh, it's just wrong, and and you know again, I mean, what what people may not understand is there are a lot of people in this business who are appalled at some of the things that they're seeing going on, um, because the and and of course uh, Joy Behar when she was on the View, now she's I don't consider her to be a journalist, but when she was like crowing about the fact that this that uh, she read the ABC News report, the, and, the Brian yeah. Ross report, and Brian so. Uh, that was wrong and and uh, said that Trump the candidate uh, said things that, that that Trump the candidate didn't. So I think the errors really bother people. And it's funny because, of course, again, President Trump says things that are inaccurate every day. People expect him to be inaccurate. Right. <laughs> it's, he's a loose speaker. He's not precise. And people accept that. They shouldn't accept it in the media. I don't you know whether the, what they should do with the president that's up to them but it's not acceptable in what we do and and so there are mistakes that people are making that just don't need to be made now, as a reporter the leakier the ship of state the better for you easier it is to get information does this does this white house leak do people talk they're not really great at leaking to regional newspapers bill <laughs> so <laughs> they, yes they leak but they're not they're not uh, you know they tend to want to leak it's so funny of course that's the other real irony about trump hating the media haha because he doesn't he reads the new york times religiously right. and who does he talk to he talks when he wants to give an interview who does he talk to maggie haberman peter baker new york times he loves the new york times he's always fe feeding them stuff um, if you if you read the beginning of the uh, the Trump book, Let Trump Be Trump, that's one of the first things they point out that he went to the New York Times and wanted to give them the scoop that he's running for president. And what does the New York Times do? Say thanks, but no thanks. They don't think he's actually running. Which was not an unreasonable thing to think at the right. time. Right. A lot of us thought he was just trying to game NBC out of more money for The Apprentice or something like that. That's right. So, yeah. so, so anyway. Um, so it's not a White House full of leakers. I well, it's not a White House, alas, full of leakers for, for me. You, which right. if, which. I wish if you're if you're in the White House listening. <laughs> Here's my number. <laughs> and, and if you're not in the White House listening and you have something good, I'm here. You know, uh, you can we find me at the. We should videotape this so you can make the call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I do think that you saw a lot more stories about leaking when Reince Priebus and Sean Spicer were in the White House than you do with John Kelly uh, as chief of staff and, and Sarah Sanders. Because Kelly has just more more control of the place. Yeah, and I think that I think that it was just astonishing the first six months. There were so many. There were battles were in in Bill. You've seen this. We've seen this in campaigns. There are campaigns where people want everybody to know. I'm the really smart guy who knows the right thing, and that person who's my rival in the campaign is a stupid person. So you leak stuff to make them look bad. Right. And. You can tell by the way stories come out that there were stories that made certain people look bad. Um, there was a the White House. Uh, there was a panel that Margaret Talib, who's now the head of the White House Correspondents Association, was on, and she was asked how things were different from one White House uh, from one press secretary to the next, and she said, "Since Sarah Sanders has become press secretary, I don't. It, there is." It used to be that every week somebody would leak her something that was supposed to be really bad for Sean Spicer, like every week. She said that stopped. Um, so it was very leak intensive. All White Houses leak. The question is, do they leak to their benefit or to their detriment? And we know that the first half, it was to their detriment. All right, let's talk about Sarah Sanders for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, are you impressed by her? Anybody who survives that White House impresses me. I think she does a good job at 
Is this the worst job in Washington? It's the absolute worst job in Washington. And, there, I mean, what you were asking, what did Sean Spicer do wrong? Right. And I don't know the answer. But I do know this much. You do not look at Donald Trump and say, you're wrong all the time. Or say, gee, this is how you should do something. I don't know that Sean Spicer did that. But I'm guessing in the first month when people couldn't believe that a president was behaving the way that he, that he was, that there were people inside that White House, perhaps the chief of staff, uh, perhaps a bunch of people who were saying maybe you should do things differently. And I, Donald Trump did not like that. He's like, I'm president. I'm the one who won. You should not be telling me how to do things. Uh, General Kelly, the chief of staff, seems to have a pretty good understanding of what he can what he can do and what he can't do. Mm -hmm. He says, people thought, excuse me, people thought that he would come in and he would start uh, basically deciding how things would work with, you know, that he would stop Trump from tweeting, that he would sort of, that he would do all that stuff and, and, and show a certain kind of discipline. And he said, no, I'm not a gatekeeper telling him what he can and cannot tell people. My job is to determine who gets into him. He's the gatekeeper. There was So it's my job to make sure that 20 people don't walk in in a given hour and tell him something. It's my job to make sure that somebody doesn't show him an article that is uh, comes from a right. bad source. The New York Times ran that article over the weekend, which made this point that um, before he came along, it was not unusual for a Trump meeting to have 15 or 20 people kind of entering and exiting at various times. With him in charge, it's very different, small groups and very focused. And, and I, I, you know, I think that there's an understanding that, the president doesn't always have um, a keen eye for understanding what's verifiable and what isn't. So you don't want people handing him articles that will prove to be untrue later. Mm-hmm. How are communications decisions made in this White House? I've worked in political operations, Deb, where it was a pretty simple function. You'd have a press secretary, a speechwriter, a communications director. The boss sometimes involved in decisions, but basically you're kind of deciding where the boss would go and what he would do, and the boss would trust what you're doing. How do you think things work in this White House? I think Donald Trump makes all the big decisions on that sort of thing. And again, I, and I think that the people who work there now understand that mm-hmm. and that they don't try to direct him and tell him what to do. So what does Hope Hicks do? Hope Hicks likes the New York Times in to interview the president. That's what she does. <laughs> I'll never forget one day I'm sitting in the briefing room and it's after the briefing and I'm working on something and I see Hope Hicks open the door and... She's the communications director. She's the communications director, and Maggie Haberman and Peter Baker, and it was either Glenn Thrush or Michael um, Scheer are sitting there, and they, and I'm, she opens the door, and they all go in, and I'm like, oh, my day's going to change bad. I just, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's what she does. She, she facilitates interviews with the New York Times. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure she makes many, many other decisions. Um, she's not somebody that you see a lot. Where, where I am, you don't see her in the briefing room. You don't see her. I mean, not that's not her job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, that's what I can tell you. So, forty-nine people sitting in that press room for a briefing every day. I know you don't know what's in their heads or in their hearts, but how many of those forty-nine people do you think voted for Donald Trump? Well, here's another change, and that is there are more conservative right, media. Right, they brought in some conservative uh, media, especially online media. Right. So let's say 15 to 20 percent, 15 percent. And we're, so we're talking outfits like? Um, LifeSet. LifeSet. That's uh, Laura Ingram's publication, right? That's correct. Uh, Breitbart. Mm-hmm. Um, Gateway Pundit has somebody in there. Um, I mean, by the way, um, like Sputnik has somebody in there, too. I should mention that. <laughs> It's, I don't understand. There are certain people, it's so hard to get that hard pass and to have the entree there. And, um, but there are, anyway, so there are, and there, there are a number of Christian, um, mm-hmm. like they're Christian broadcasting. And so there are more conservatives there than there used to be. Um, that's really, frankly, I think healthy. I think that's a great thing about this briefing room is that before it was all everybody who thought alike. And and, and uh, my, asked me about the Obama briefing room, how many people voted for him? Gee, I think that's probably like 95% of the people in that room probably. Right. 
Um, they didn't tend to vote Republican. So This does raise the question, though, and you've dealt with this as a columnist because you're a conservative columnist, and yet you're writing about San Francisco politics, California politics, so more times than not. You're writing about Democrats, and you're writing about people maybe you didn't vote for, and so it's hard to leave your feelings and your you know, own biases. It's hard to check those at the door when you're writing. And the people who can't check it at the door, it's so clear. Right. Um, there are a lot of people there who just... Uh, they just want to argue. I mean, they don't even ask real questions. I'll never get Jim Acosta that time when he asked a question. I think it was to Stephen Miller about immigration. He said, well, what about what it says on the Statue of Liberty? Like, is that like a legal standard now? That yeah. <laughs> there, are things, there, there are questions where they just want to argue about policy. There are certain people who just want to argue policy. Or they want to argue about um, qualities that the president has that everybody knows. And so uh, what would be a good question like that? Like, the president said this, but then he said this. And, well, okay, (laughs) I think we know what that is. But so there's, you know, there there are sort of questions that answer themselves. And and you can see who those folks are. There there are more people than you would think who just want to do straight reporting. And that's really why they're there. It doesn't mean that they necessarily voted for him but they get that he's the president of the united states and what their job is they get it it is yeah i think one of the issues here is we can talk about the trump media approach being that all times donald trump wants to play to his base so he loves nothing more than being able to do what he did last week which was to blast cnn and blast the washington post for fake news Mm -hmm. still living off of fake news but i could also argue conversely that by Jim Acosta or people in the media going after Trump, going after Sarah Sanders, Sean Spicer, they too are playing for their respective bases. Because let's face it, CNN has a base of people who watch That's and they right. don't like Donald Trump, as do MSNBC, conversely Fox has, has Trump viewers and so forth. So it seems to me this is part of the problem, this relationship. Trump has this toxic approach, but there are people in the press who also have a toxic approach. That's true. And I think Sarah Sanders is, that's something she's really good about. Uh, right knowing how to talk back to that when it happens to her. You know, when she'll say, uh, uh, you know, she, she again, she'll remark about how she's answered a question like several times, but she's happy to answer it again if the people want to keep asking it. And I think she has a good way of, um, of she's has a wry way of dealing with people who are, there are some peacocks in the room. Sure. And she understands how to, Put those peacocks were on the shelf, if as it were. She also, by the I should say, she, she runs the office well. Um, yeah. So, of I, course, I understand too. When that place opened, there were a lot of people who had never done any work like this before. It was understaffed, and these people were asked to do things that they just didn't even know how to work through the administration for. And you know, we're, we're now almost a year in. Okay, so besides obviously talking to you more, what can this press office do better, your estimation? Well, I think that the late briefings are a disservice to the press office because it means that people start reporting on their stories later. Well, three, a 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock press briefing just absolutely jams East Coast print reporters, first of all. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And and even if you're not East Coast, again, you, you're making phone calls to East Coast people if you to ask a lot of questions. or and, and so you want you have less time to do it. And I think that there are, I mean, again, I mean, there are times when I, um, the president just steps on a great message where he has this victory and then he just steps on it mm-hmm. with a tweet or something like that. And that's something the press office has absolutely no control over. Um and I, so I just think that there are times when they could, and again, these folks are overworked and they're, they're, but they could give you more of a hint about what's going on on policy things. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember there was a day where they were going to spend a whole day discussing what the president did on regulations. That, unfortunately, was the day of the Las Vegas shootings. Right, things don't get in the way today might happen for you because today was the day of the explosion in New York City, so terrorism might might step on today's story. But exactly. 
you know, every White House is overworked, though. You know, for, for past administrations, NBC News has traditionally gone in and they've done a day at the White House. I don't think that's going to happen with this presidency. <laughs> but they've gone in, and it's it's interesting to watch. It's also about the most staged thing you'll ever see on television. They go to the White House. It's usually the first year to have it's the new administration, what's a new president doing? And, of course, it's one of those magical kind of West Wing days where there's about you know, half a dozen fascinating things going on. And I always, I always walk away from those things afraid for the republic simply because what they show is White House staffers coming in at 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning and working to 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. My thought is, my God, a year from now, they're going to be so sleep-deprived, they're not going to have an idea what they're doing and what happens if we have a genuine crisis. <laughs> so I don't know if being overworked is necessarily with this White House, but it just might be the frenetic pace of the guy they work for, who, even though he is 71 years old and in theory should be kind of a sort of, you know, on the straight and narrow, he thrives on chaos. He loves chaos. And uh, I mean, I think people in the beginning especially thought that he would change. Right. And so there was this, when are you going to realize you can't do this? And of course, the answer is he's not. <laughs> he isn't. It, it, it just, he's going to be who he is. He sees that he, he won the White House this way, and that's what he's, he's going to do. And, um, and, Understanding that is the key to working there. There are times when Sarah Sanders gives answers that defy credulity. And you're looking at her thinking, she has to say that. And it's really not our job in the media to make determinations like that. It's not, it's not for me to say, well, yeah, she, <laughs> she has to say that. And yet, that's what you end up doing. I mean, well, this is a presidency who has changed the way I wonder what it will be like for the next president. There is a very funny Doonesbury cartoon of about 45 years ago. This is at the height of Watergate, and Gary Trudeau is just lancing into the Nixon White House on a daily basis and going after Ron Ziegler in particular, the White House press secretary. And I remember this one cartoon in particular. It just shows the anonymous press voice in the White House. He goes, Ron, every morning you stand in front of the mirror about to shave and you think to yourself, I'm about to go out and tell a most incredible series of lies. <laughs> what do you think, Ron? <laughs> the pause, he goes, I start shaving. <laughs> How long can this relationship continue like this where the press are going at Trump every day, and Trump is trying to do his best to go after the press every day. Can he do this for four to eight years, or is, is this going to have to change? Oh, it's not going to change. It's not going to change. This and, is going to continue for three more years. And it's easier if you understand that. <laughs> the, the people are going, what? when is he going just. Not, I just don't think it's going to happen. If it does, so be it. I do think that there have been things that you can see in the president's learning curve, mm -hmm. uh, that he's understanding that there are certain ways that you have to do things in Washington. Like what? I think he's working better uh, with uh, Mitch McConnell, for example. Um, and I think, as you re may recall, there was a time this summer when there were testy uh, comments that he made about Mc McConnell, and I think he's come to understand that if he wants to get things done, he needs to deal with Republicans. I, Chuck and Nancy, <laughs> uh, his best friends, no uh, how that's going to work, I'm not sure. Um, that seems to be on again, off again relationship. I, I would imagine it's going to be. Uh, I would. I think that's absolutely right. On occasion, both sides need each other, and they will. They will get along just grandly then. So I think, and and the media, um, it's. I, I. At any rate, he believes he won, and he loves chaos. So most people, I think don't like this much chaos right. and they feel that there are things that that you shouldn't that you sh you have to sort of cede to the way things are done mm -hmm. that that's a more polite thing to do and then you look at things that he's done look at Jerusalem most people would think yes uh, not, uh, not most people there are many American voters who would think yeah we all know Jerusalem's the capital of Israel uh, but you can't say that because something bad could happen. And he, this is the guy who will bluff it through. Uh, he will call Kim Jong-un Little Rocket Man. He will do things like that. And we're about to find out, I mean, or we, we find out every day that it's not as bad as we thought it would be. These, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Jerusalem, I'm talking about Kim Jong-un, I'm talking about the language, I'm talking about the way he talks about other leaders, um, that, that he survives, and that the, the, wor the world doesn't come tumbling down. 
and that America is still America for those people who feel that it, it isn't because of the way he's acting. I, I, you know, when Bill Clinton came into office, Deb, he made two big mistakes. Mm-hmm. First mistake was he misread the opportunity and that here he was, the first baby boomer president, born in 1946, 46 years old at the time of his election, going into White House full of reporters of the same generation, looking forward to having somebody who saw the world that they did. And yet the Clintons viewed the press as the enemy. Hillary Clinton wanted to move the press out of the White House and kick him over into the old executive office building. Had to be talked out of it by George Stephanopoulos and Dee Myers. That was a mistake number one. They viewed the press as enemies to be kept at arm's distance when they probably could have really taken full advantage of them. The second mistake was he went to the radio and TV galleries dinner at Capitol Hill that year. And he got up before them and tried to make a joke, and it was one of those jokes that was not funny because it was true. And he said, you know what I learned in the election? I don't need you people. I can go with Larry King any time I want to and get my message to the American people. And the people in that room went, ha, 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 because they realized, holy smokes, he's right. He can completely get around the Washington media. Does Donald Trump look at the White House press corps and think, I don't need you people? You know, one of I the could, I could tweet anytime yeah. I want to. I can create my own little bleep storm anytime I want to. I don't need you people writing about me every day. I can go straight to the American people. You know he thinks that. And you know what amazes me? If I go out and I'm covering an event where he's speaking, a lot of people won't even talk to you if you say, Hi, I'm with the Las Vegas Review Journal. Can I ask you a question? And they're like, No, they hate you, Just right? Media, yeah. uh, but but um, some people will say, Oh, it's so great to see him without looking through the media filter. And I'm just thinking, what? Because, yeah, can read what he says on Twitter. He's on TV all the time saying exactly what he wants to say. It's not as if, and, and, and it, okay, newspapers, we pick quotes out when we write stories. TV stories do that as well. But this guy's everywhere. It's not as if, as if the public can't see him except through our filter. Um, and, and But people... They think that. At least the ba- the Trump base really thinks of it that way. Uh, and, and he thinks that way. He thinks that we're tools to be used, which is what every president thinks. Exactly. They all think that. Exactly. Useful yeah. idiot is the phrase that comes to mind. I don't want to get all <laughs> First Amendment sanctimonious and truth dies in the dark and that sort of thing. But there is a need for an active, vigilant press in this country. Politicians have to be held accountable. They have to be checks and balances. But what do you think the media can be doing better in this day and age to regain the public's trust? Something that, I mean, that I know for myself, I, I, I like to write more stories about policy. And unfortunately, the Trump show just sidelines it all the time. And in a way, I mean, my biggest beat is the Trump show. Mm-hmm. Um, because one person can't cover everything. And the most central thing is the president. So uh, I try to get off the Trump show and into other things that are happening because of it as much as I can. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and I do think that's an area where the press shop could be more helpful and isn't. And um, so the, I guess that's what I would say is what, what does this mean? I mean, what people, what people hate about the Russia story and what people hate about the press is, again, we're always talking about how great we are and how you, know, you have to answer our questions and aren't we, aren't we brave because we're here, all that other stuff. Eh, no one cares. But people want to know, how is, how is this policy going to affect me? Now, of course, the tax bill, we don't know what the tax bill is from one day to the next. So that makes it, you, and, and hence, you can't give people the clarity they want at any given moment until things are at a certain point. But, um, but I, you know, I, I think that, right, you know, getting outside of Washington and, and, or, or, or talking about what Washington is, does to, and how it affects people, I mean, I think that's something that we can do a better job with. Do the press have to write about everything that he tweets? The White House is full of a million and one boring proclamations and statements and declarations and things like that that the press don't write about on a daily basis. Where is it said that you have to write about what he tweets? Boy, that's such a great question. And I remember, so back in my columnist days, when I'm not a reporter and I'm right. going, why are all these people writing all these stories about his tweets? I probably write one or two stories a month about his tweets, mm-hmm. um, which seems to me like, a, in other words, when they're, when there's something that changes how something moves, when there's a, a special, I like I I think I mentioned to you. I'm thinking, do I want to write about 
the three big media mistakes that were made last week. And, of course, that would include the president's tweets on them. And there are times when you'll write a bigger story and the tweets are in them, but you're not writing about the tweets per se. Um, of course, the tweets at times, I mean, you, you may recall that the press secretary told us the tweets are the, are the record. Right. What the president tweets are the record. It's like saying, hey, why do you always have to cover his speeches? Right. Well, because they're what the president's saying. So I, I think that there are people who get just caught up in the dumb little stuff. But this is the loop that we're caught in, it seems, that we complain about Donald Trump tweeting, and yet every time he tweets, you take the bait and you write about it. So he's not going to stop mm-hmm. if you keep reporting because you're doing what he wants you to do. Yeah, well, I, I agree. There are people yeah. who do that. I don't consider myself one of those people. Right. I do believe that there are times when his tweets are impactful, and those are the times that I write about them. Um, but, and, and I remember during the, the impeachment days with Bill Clinton mm-hmm. that there were all these people who would walk up to you and say, I never read the stories about Bill Clinton's impeachment. And then they would tell you every dirty detail about everything that had to do with Monica Lewinsky and blah, 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 blah. So you knew that they really were reading and they really were eating it up and they were telling you that they weren't because they liked to think that they were indignant about it. Um, I would put the Trump tweeting in that department to a certain extent. There are people who just overdo it. Um, they can't stop talking about it because it. the thing to understand about uh, Donald Trump is he's a style crime to the uh, media elite, if you will. The, you know, the top, to, well, not everybody in the media, but we a, know. A style crime. He's a style crime. He's brash. He eats at McDonald's. He, you know, he, in fact, I was, he. Hey, by the way, I read that story. I, I've eaten at McDonald's. I don't think I could eat that much at McDonald's on a daily basis and not expose because that's what, it's two Big Macs and two fish sandwiches and fries and a shakes. Yikes. Yeah, he, and, well, okay, so it's also a health crime, perhaps, but he eat <laughs> that much fast crime, food. Yeah. But, but he, he's, he's not, he doesn't hand ring over things that people are supposed to hand ring. He, he. Uh, he counterpunches, he says. He's so the opposite of the last guy. He's just not Mr. You know, 42 long and plays basketball and is stylish and you know, goes to fancy brasseries in Washington. He's so not Barack Obama. He, he, there's no anguish, right? right? There are so many other leaders, uh, most presidents, their anguish is on display. They wonder, you know, they, they tell you how they've really thought about something. This guy... Uh, you know, the thing the thing I think that his base loves about him is he loves being a rich guy. Yeah. Now, we, we know people who have a lot of uh, assets. They're, they're, they're wealthy. And they don't really enjoy it. They're a little embarrassed about it. I read this story uh, in the New York Times about people. They cut off the tags so their service the, – so they're, they're – their, their nannies and their, their, their cleaning people won't see how much they spent on things. They feel so guilty about it. Not Donald Trump. He will tell you what he paid for things. I mean, he loves being rich. Right. He feels that the fact that he is successful is a testament to his abilities. And he will tell you that. He won't say, gee, this, you know. Oh, he is the brand. Yeah. yeah so, um, and there are, and so the reason people get turned off to the the hyper coverage of the tweets is the people who really overcover that are the people who just can't get over the fact that somebody who isn't just like them won that office and they expect everybody to be just like them he's not no i think i was telling you before we came on the air here i just finished katie tour's book she's the nbc correspondent who covered the trump campaign and it's fascinating to read about the day-in, day-life existence with Trump and the back and forth and just yeah, every day. It's just, it's rough and it's rough. She's getting treated roughly and she understands it. But at the same time, she's kind of also showing you the disconnect and that Katie is at all times bothered by it. And Katie has a different worldview from Donald Trump and Katie's lifestyle is completely incompatible that Katie is retreating to yoga and avocado toast and high-end coffee and things like that. So you can see the media disconnect. Now, we, we have talked for about 45 minutes now about Washington and the various problems with Washington. I'm going to close out now by letting you say something rare, which is a positive thing about Washington. Tell me about what is great about the city since you moved here from San Francisco, relocated into Northern Virginia. What is great about being in the nation's capital? Well, it's there are all these historic buildings. I mean, every morning I see the Capitol on my way into work. But this is the swamp. This is a, it's the sp- this is an infestation. This is a place that should be eradicated. So defend the swamp. I, I, I 
Okay, there and of course I love talking politics. Right. Everybody talks politics here. Your right. cab driver can talk politics. Right. Your people love to talk politics here. And, and let's clarify the swamp. The swamp is about mindset. It's not about physically the fen. It's about it's about the mindset of the place. Yeah, and I, I you know I understand that. I like the fact. Oh, by the way, people come here. That means you have a lot of risk takers. Mm -hmm. They come there. I mean, there. Are, I, I think I, I was reading something that said that uh, there's less movement for people moving around for jobs and stuff now than there have been in other years. And there are people. There, there's a view that that has something to do with what's happening with the economy. But there's a certain. There's something wonderful about people staying in their hometown forever, and there's also something about people moving for opportunity, and that's what this town is filled with. People who came here because they wanted to do something different. And um, it's a great walking town. It, I mean, you could just do, the tr public transit's great. It's easy to move around. Uh, the traffic is a dream compared <laughs> to places in California. And you like going to your job every day. I do, I do. It's um, Every day is an adventure. Every day is an adventure. I have no idea what one, what one week will be like to the next. And it's, or there are so many times I'll think I'm going to be doing one thing. Well, I don't think too hard I'm going to be doing one thing anymore. <laughs> it sounds like you're going to be here for a while. I think I'll be here for a while. Deb Saunders, great talking to you. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenue is available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Convince your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which is delivered to you every, every uh, your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Deborah J. Saunders is on Twitter. Your Twitter handle is surprisingly Deborah J. Saunders. That's Deborah J-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. And the Las Vegas Re Review Journal's website is? www.reviewjournal.com. I recommend it. And we can find you weekends at townhall.com as well? You can find me on Town Hall uh, on weekends. You can find me at the Review Journal, um, all sorts of places. Good stuff. Hey, thanks for coming. I look forward to seeing you on TV. Thanks, Bill. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.